If you are interested in trying to improve the outcomes for youth who age out of foster care, then this podcast is for you. Hi, I'm Lynn Tanini, founder of Aging Out Institute, an organization dedicated to sharing resources and strategies that help youth who have to age out of the system be able to transition to independence successfully. Now grab something to take notes and get ready for some great information. Hello and welcome to the ninth podcast in our podcast series, Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting. Today's guest is Dr. Johanna Greeson. Dr. Greeson is an associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice, and she is also the managing faculty director at the Field Center for Children's Policy, Practice, and Research. Today, Dr. Greeson is going to share with us her work and her perspective on the best strategies for helping youth age out of care. Welcome, Johanna, to the AOI podcast series. I'm so glad that you could join us today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Lynn. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Well, what I would like to do first is to find out more about what you do and your connection to the foster care system. So could you please share a little bit about yourself and what, what it is that you do? Sure. I'm an associate professor um, at the University of Pennsylvania in the School of Social Policy and Practice. And so in that role, I do research and I teach our MSW students. I advise PhD students on their dissertations. And then I'm also uh, the managing faculty director at the Field Center for Children's Policy, Practice, and Research at the University of Pennsylvania, um, which is one of my school's uh, research centers. Okay. And did you have any connection with the foster care system prior to your current work? Yes. Uh, (laughs) I first got interested um, in foster care issues, broadly speaking, in my first job after I got my MSW degree because I worked in a private foster care agency and I was doing in-house program evaluation. And so it really gave me an opportunity to learn a lot about a system that I had not known much about up until that point. And that's when I really actually started getting interested in the issues related to older youth in care. Okay. I have a question and I don't think I've ever asked anybody this question before. I'm thinking of the MSW programs that are out there. I I don't know exactly how they work, but how is it that they learn about foster care and the challenges that the youth face? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So as you can probably imagine, they do all function differently. Um, So I'll just speak to um, the way that my program functions. Mm -hmm. So we offer a um, specialization in child well-being and child welfare, which I also direct. And that's a specialization that's available to our advanced year students, which are typically our second year students. Um, They elect to take it. And then there's two child welfare specific courses that I teach that those students take. And then they take a third course as an elective that, uh, you know, they pick sort of from a pre-approved elective list. And that's the main way that we teach students about child welfare in a very direct way. And then, of course, in other classes, 
you know, they might learn a little bit here and there, but if they really want to get in depth, then they choose to take specialization that we offer. Okay. I was just wondering about that and how much knowledge they gain in school versus what they need to learn in training on the job once they actually are out as a caseworker working with youth. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, they learn in class sort of the basics, but then it really does take that real world, you know, life experience to bring them beyond the basics. Um, And of course, when they're in our class, they're also doing a field placement or internship that obviously is fundamental to their learning as well. But again, you know, with any degree program, especially a professional degree program like social work, we don't have them for very long. Two years is not very long. So, you know, we really focus on the fundamentals and really laying the foundation and then all the more um, nuanced practice that needs to happen after that, that has to wait until they get out into the field. Right. Well, that makes sense. And do you find that in your program, you have a number of youth who come from at-risk backgrounds or foster care backgrounds? Well, so the short answer to that is no, but I will say, I, you know, we're not necessarily privy to that information either. So unless, you know, a young person, a student chooses to share that, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily know. I do know of a couple that, you know, have shared their background with me because they've been in class with me or, you know, we've met in one way or another. So it does happen, but it's probably underreported just because there's lots of information that I'm certainly not privy to. Sure, sure. I just wonder because it just seems like a large number of the youth that I am familiar with want to help. Yeah, right. Definitely. They want to give back. And so they choose to go down the social work path to do that. It's not uncommon. I mean, I hear the same thing. And I would love to create a better mechanism for that to happen in my program, but haven't really been able to think about that in any depth yet. Well, well, you are very busy. <laughs> based on uh, based on the list of things that you do on the University of Pennsylvania website, uh, it looks like you you definitely have a lot to accomplish. So, with that, why don't we go ahead and move on? And if you could help us understand what is it that the university does to research the area of foster care, to pull together recommendations, what is it that you do, and what do you produce that can help? Just, you know, again, speaking from my own experience, um, you know, there could be other things happening at the university related to this issue that I'm not aware of, although I think that's probably not very likely. (laughs) (laughs) So just to put it out there that I am just speaking from my own experience. So one of the things I do is I help manage the Field Center for Children's Policy Practice and Research at the university, um, which is an interdisciplinary center that focuses on helping to prevent child maltreatment and improve outcomes for children involved with the child welfare system. We're actually a collaboration of several schools at Penn, including my school, which is the School of Social Policy, uh, Social Policy and Practice, as well as the School of Medicine, the Law School, the Nursing School, um, the School of Education, and then Arts and Sciences. So we've got six schools that collaborate, as well as Children's Hospital of Philadelphia as part of the Field Center. 
And um, we don't serve clients directly at the field center, but our research and advocacy inform policies and practice to enhance and ensure that um, the well-being of abused and neglected children and those at risk of maltreatment is protected. And one of our more exciting projects related to practice in this area has been a multi-year initiative called Foster Care to College. In this initiative, we have a variety of activities aimed at increasing the number of young people who have experience in foster care that end up attending and completing college. Because if you know anything about the way those numbers look, you know, there's a very large proportion, over half of youth who age out of care um, who say they want to go to college. And then that number drops for those who actually matriculate. And then it drops again beyond the first year, persistence beyond the first year. And then it gets all the way down to about 3% that actually end up graduating with a bachelor's degree. So we've been working on trying to address that problem. One way we do that is convening a work group of stakeholders to identify gaps and opportunities in their current service provision. And we've built our strategy then from this work group. And so we've done trainings and we've developed resources for youth in foster care who want to explore higher ed. And we've advocated for legislative and policy changes that can positively impact that group. And so we're especially proud to have worked on and led an advocacy effort for the Fostering Independence Through Education Act, which our governor in Pennsylvania signed into law last summer. And so starting this fall, that new law will provide a waiver of tuition and fees at all institutions of higher ed in the state of Pennsylvania for young people who are in foster care after age 16. And as far as we know, we're actually the only state in the country to now include private institutions in the tuition waiver. And we're really proud of that because other states have waivers, but they only cover public institutions. And does that cover, it covers tuition, not necessarily room and board? It's tuition and fees. So yes, you're correct. And so that's one of the gaps that still exists because we all know that the cost of college is the combination of tuition, room and board, and fees. You know, if there are other folks that want to get in the game of helping to address this problem, (laughs) you know, it would be working on a solution that would also cover room and board. And does that also cover trade schools? Like I'm thinking Thaddeus Stevens in Lancaster, which is a trade college. Do you know? It might just be four-year, but it could be two and four-year. But I'm not positive about that or vocational. I think it does. I think they were pretty all-inclusive, but that would be, you know, something I'd have to check out. Okay. Well, I, I can look into it as well. And if I find something, I'll put it in the show's program notes as a link. Okay. One of the things that I would like to ask about is the graduation rate. I believe I read a study a while ago that showed that, yes, generally speaking, there's about a 3% actual graduation rate. But isn't there a difference between young men and young women, that it's a lower percentage for young men than women? I, I believe that's what I read. I think you're right. And that for whatever reasons, I don't have the study in front of me, that the young ladies graduate more often than the young men do. Yeah, I forget also. Let me ask you this. Research is so important and it's your life. And I believe that every program that runs should have a foundation that has a research support in the strategies that they choose to use. 
in the Aging Out Institute website, we have a database and I'm trying to throw as many studies in there as I can. So when people do a search on research, they can show by year all of the research. So how can people find the publications that you put out from the Field Center? Yeah, uh, we actually do a really good job at the Field Center of posting them on our website. We have both peer-reviewed scholarly articles that have been published. And then we also have reports that we've done, as well as some white papers. We do a really good job of getting any of that up on the website so that folks can access it relatively easily at no cost. Okay. So I guess it might be easiest just to do a search for University of Pennsylvania Field Center? Yeah, exactly. I think we might be fieldcenteratpenn.com or org. I don't know. Yeah, but just doing a search mm-hmm. with the <laughs> those words will work. Okay, fantastic. And how would you, if you were, say, talking to somebody who was just starting out in the building of a program and designing it, how would you explain the benefit of having the research foundation? Well, how would I explain the benefit? I have a lot of things that come to mind. So maybe one of the most important things is as a social worker, I have a professional code of ethics that I agree to adhere to when I use my title of being a social worker. That code of ethics says that I will treat people with respect and and uphold certain standards uh, in my practice and engagement with vulnerable populations. And so One of those standards does relate to research. And so I would tell someone that it's basically our obligation as practitioners, especially as social work practitioners, to provide services that are the best available to our knowledge. That way, it helps ensure that, you know, we're doing right by the folks that we're working with and serving. And the only way to know that, you know, you're sort of doing right by them is, you know, if you can use a program or intervention that has been um, studied by someone and that there are results for it that shows that it benefits as opposed to harms. And so, you know, I would always advise people not to start from scratch, but to see, you know, what is out there. And even if you have a new idea that hasn't been tried yet, and that's totally amazing and great, and we need more new ideas, you know, there's still a way to go about developing an idea that is grounded in evidence and theory And, you know, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. And so being mindful of all of that is part of the right way. Sure. That's a great way of explaining it. Now, our current situation that we're in, I'm going to switch gears here, the COVID-19 pandemic, Mm -hmm. how is that affecting the work that you do there at the Field Center? Well, we've actually used it as an opportunity to launch a research study looking at the impact of COVID-19 on um, youth who age out of foster care. We suspect that older youth in foster care and those that have recently aged out are experiencing a heightened version of all of the ill effects that most of us are feeling at this unprecedented time. And so to that end, uh, we wanted to hear from young people directly so that our advocacy and the advocacy of stakeholders around the nation can be grounded in research and reflect a true assessment of people's needs. 
Uh, so we created an online survey that takes about 10 to 15 minutes to complete to learn about um, how COVID is affecting the housing, food security, education, employment, finances, health, mental health, and personal connections for young adults with experience in foster care. So any young person in the United States uh, who's between the ages of 18 and 23 and either still in care or recently aged out is eligible to participate. And we plan to then use the results of the survey to immediately engage in advocacy around current needs, as well as to contribute to a future body of literature on the topic of vulnerable youth, youth in foster care, and national public health crises, um, such as the one that we're experiencing now. Right. How fast a turnaround would you expect for that? In terms of getting the data out to advocacy and practice communities, I mean, we're going to try and do that within like a week. Oh, wow. <laughs> We've got a plan in place to, you know, quickly look at the highlights of the data after the survey closes on Saturday. And we've got templates already ready that we just have to drop numbers into basically. And then we're going to push all that out over social media and then also posting on our website. And then over the summer, we'll write at least one paper um, to publish in the peer-reviewed literature um, looking at this. But there'll probably be at least a second paper, I would think, that'll come out of it at some point. Okay. So you don't actually do the advocacy, but what you do is provide the data for the groups that do advocate. Is that correct? Uh, that's more or less correct. Sometimes we do do advocacy. Sometimes we get invited to Harrisburg to, you know, share our thoughts about, you know, a piece of legislation. So the tuition waiver legislation that I talked about earlier is an example of the field center engaging in direct advocacy efforts. But more often than not, you know, it, it's making the other organizations and groups aware of the information and giving it to them so that then they can also share. Okay, so the data that comes out of this study could be used by the groups to convince lawmakers, say, to extend definitely foster care benefits, as an example. I believe there are maybe three or four states that have made a statement about, yes, we're going to extend care, but most have not yet. Yes, correct. And these would be data that could definitely be used um, for things like that. Okay, great. Well, that's good to know. Thank you very much. I think by the time we get this podcast posted, that might be just about at the time when the data will have just come out. Yeah. <laughs> now, if just the folks who are listening would like to see the data, can they do that through the Field Center or do they need to contact you directly? So they can email me. Um, also, I finally have the homepage for the Field Center. It's fieldcenteratpen.org, and it's the word at right there in the middle. But yeah, all of the sort of data briefs, are, I don't think we even have an actual name for them yet, but that might be a good one. We'll post them on the website of the Field Center for sure. Okay, fantastic. And you mentioned emailing you. What email should folks use if they wanted to get in touch with you? Um, it's jgreeson, G-R-E-E-S-O-N, at upenn.edu. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Well, I'd be very interested in seeing the results of that when, when that's all pulled together. Definitely. Now, you also just put out, or at least were part of a group that just put out another research study. 
I remember seeing the paper, and I believe it has to do with the elements that need to be in place or should be in place if you have a program. So it was an analysis of programs that work with young people. So maybe you can just share quickly about that study, because I know that just was recently put out. Yes, and thanks for noticing that. So yes, we just published a paper in Children and Youth Services Review called Interventions for Youth Aging Out of Foster Care, a State of the Science Review. Actually, it was last summer that I had this idea. I realized that we're about two decades out from when the Foster Care Independence Act was expanded, which was in 1999 to provide federal funding for independent living and transition services for older youth in foster care, which was one of the first major pieces of legislation that tried to address the issue of kids aging out of foster care. I realized that, you know, over that 20 years or so, there's been a, you know, an explosion of programming, which is a great thing. But I was like, well, what do we really know about how these programs are doing? Do we know if they're working? Well, you know, and are they doing what they were designed to do? And and what are they doing about more vulnerable groups within foster care, like pregnant and parenting youth and LGBTQ youth and youth of color, um, youth with disabilities, and those that cross over between child welfare and juvenile justice? And so I had this idea of, you know, writing a paper that would basically take stock of the evidence and sort of say like, okay, well, this is what we've learned. This is what's working. This is what's not working. And so we used the National Governors Association Center for Best Practices guide as a framework for what um, interventions or programs uh, or for what areas to, to look for. So we wanted to look for um, programs targeting education, employment, housing, health, mental health, and relationships. And then we searched both research and gray literatures for evidence of the effectiveness of any programs targeting those areas. And we looked for peer-reviewed scientific articles as well as evaluation reports. And then um, we used the California Evidence-Based Clearinghouse for Child Welfare Scientific Rating Scale to rate each of the program's evidence. A program can get a rating of one to five, with one being well-supported by research evidence and then five being concerning practice. So we found a total of 79 programs or interventions that have been developed in the last 20 years, but only 10 of those 79 yielded any sort of rating from one to five. So that's only 13% meaning that the vast majority of programs that are out there don't even have any evidence base, much less a strong evidence base. <laughs> and so the best rating in any of the five practice areas um, was a two, which is supported by research evidence. And that applied to four programs. And then the area with the most rated programs was relationships. And that had um, four programs receiving a rating. And then the area with the least programs was health and mental health, um, with only a single program receiving a, a rating. Um, and then there, there are a lot more in-depth results, but that was sort of just a snapshot of what the paper was trying to do. And so the take-home message of this paper is good job, 
developing programs, but now we need to shift focus and really start rigorously evaluating programs. Right. Well, that was going to be my next question. So what do organizations do about that? And so, I mean, if you're starting an organization and you're designing it, you could start with the end in mind and you could say, okay, how how are we going to know that we've done what we set out to do? What evaluation methods? And then that's easier, I think, when you start that way. But what would you advise organizations? And I know that there are going to be folks who work for organizations listening to this podcast. What would you advise them to do? Well, of course, uh, my answer sort of hinges on organizations being willing to put some resources towards evaluation. And I would say you either hire someone, like I was hired way back when, to do in-house evaluation work for you, or you contract with a university or think tank type place that ha- or a private research firm that has that capacity to help you either design, but then you implement it yourself on the inside or have them design and actually implement for you. And then, you know, in terms of money, uh, there are um, some grants that are out there, you know, that are available and grant makers, you know, often love the collaboration between universities and private providers is seen as, you know, a great thing. But, you know, there's also ways to start small. And that's something that all of our MSW students at my school, and but also across the country in any school, take an introduction to research methods course. And one of the things it's designed to do is to train social workers to be able to go into an agency setting either, you know, as a clinician or maybe as a macro practitioner prepared to do planning and program development and program evaluation and sort of start being able to put the infrastructure in place, you know, even to do a small scale evaluation. So any graduate of an MSW program has been exposed to not only why it matters, but also how to start to design an evaluation. And so, you know, my suggestion for a program that, or an organization that, you know, might say, well, we don't have any money, would be to look at your assets on the inside and see, you know, what folks, um, what skills they have that might not be uh, being used, um, especially among social workers, and see, you know, what you can do from the inside. You know, obviously, that's one end of the continuum. The other end of the continuum is an organization, for example, that I worked with when I was a PhD student. And so I was a PhD student from 05 to 09. Uh, So they were just starting to get their in-house research in order. And they had uh, a woman who was their director of research. And, and this was a child and youth serving organization. So this was not a research organization. But I did work with them as a PhD student with my advisor to help them start learning how to use all the data they already collect. And that's the other thing is these organizations are already collecting an extraordinary amount of data. And it's just figuring out how to use that data that's already being collected to start answering some of these questions. And so we really help put them on the map for being um, one of the leaders in using a data-driven approach and how they're serving children and youth. And now, you know, they've just really taken off. The name of the group is Youth Villages, and their home office or like main office is in Tennessee, but they've spread all over the country. And one of their programs is in the paper I was just talking about. And 
got the best rating that we gave, which was a two, which is supported by research. And that's their YV Life Set program, which is basically an independent living program that has been shown to you know, reduce all sorts of negative outcomes that youth experience when they age out and also bolster the positive ones. Right. That's great. I, I have heard of them. Yeah, they're great. Mm-hmm. And I would just say to anyone listening that the lack of outcomes evidence is a general nonprofit challenge. It isn't just among the folks who work with foster youth. It's- yes, yes. <laughs> so, uh, so don't feel too bad <laughs> if, if you don't have that. But then the question is, how can you move forward? Yes, yes. All right. So let's move on. One question that I wanted to ask you is, from the research that you've done, are there specific strategies that you think are more effective to help foster youth get ready for adulthood? Uh, like, let's say if you had to choose, you know, three or four that you would share with the organization, say, these are the ones that you really need to have in place. What would you say to that? So our field right now has really had a misguided focus um, saying that we need to be helping these young people build independence and get them ready to be independent adults um, when they leave foster care. And that is, um, I think, uh, erroneous. And, and I think at the root of a lot of problems that we have when we talk about kids aging out of care. And so I strongly feel that our focus should be on helping young people cultivate interdependence and helping them build social support. And that we should get away from stressing that they need to build all these random skills and instead focus on helping them build relationships. I then think that with at least one relationship like that in place with an adult that a young person feels close to who can provide them emotional support, other kinds of social support, that then they are much better positioned to transition to adulthood. And that in that context of a relationship with a caring adult, a young person can then develop their independent living or life skills because that much more closely matches the way that non-foster care youth learn those skills. So young people that are from, quote-unquote, intact, typical nuclear family, you know, learn those independent living skills gradually as they grow up um, when they need them. And it's an organic process. And I think we can recreate that same process um, for kids who come from very fractured, fragmented families, like those that are in foster care, if we focus on helping them cultivate interdependence and helping them forge relationships with caring adults and really help them to create what you know I like to call a personal safety net. And I would imagine you're speaking from a research perspective that research is showing that this is really key. Yes, um, we definitely have a strong body of research that says that social support is imperative, that a relationship with a caring adult is protective for youth that come from a variety of risk conditions, including those that have been maltreated and ended up in foster care. And then also that the, uh, the same kind of relationship can then be promotive for young people who are not at risk, but that, you know, those relationships are beneficial for all young people. 
our system, though, hasn't caught up to that research, um, or at least not in any um, large scale or systematic way, because our, our federal government is still spending $140 million a year on independent living programming. Even though there's been very rigorous, um, well-done research funded by the federal government that has shown those practices to be ineffective. Well, what could that look like? Because you would hope that if young people are in foster homes, that they would have that relationship with the foster parents. So what would you recommend that the system do? Well, you know, that happens occasionally, but it doesn't happen as much as I think people assume it happens, right? There's all different motivations for people who foster, and there's all different levels of fostering. You know, you could have a foster parent who does an excellent job, who basically is a parent, you know, and treats a a young person as their own, you know, all the way down on the continuum to someone that is in it for the money and barely provides the bare minimum, etc. So I don't really feel like that relying on foster parents is the answer. What I do feel is the answer is a form of mentoring that I've done quite a bit of work on studying and thinking about program development. And that's uh, natural mentoring uh, as opposed to a formal mentoring program. Um, So formal mentoring is also known as stranger mentoring, um, where you have a program that is trying to match a young person with an adult, and they don't know each other. And that type of mentoring has actually been shown to be pretty ineffective for young people with a history of foster care because of things like having trouble, you know, establishing trust and having traumatic loss history. There's factors like that that make the idea of a young person in foster care forging a, you know, close relationship with a stranger to be pretty unlikely. So instead, I promote, as do others, a form of mentoring, as I said, that's called natural mentoring. And that's actually when you have a young person and they feel close to an adult that's already in their life. And so it could be a teacher, a coach, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, a pastor at a church. And what is amazing is that the relationship already exists. And so my thinking has then been about, well, these relationships exist. How can then we leverage them to be a resource for a young person who's going to age out of foster care? And so, you know, I've, I've developed along those lines, I've developed a program that that does just that. And it helps an organization adopt a natural mentoring approach for youth who are going to age out of foster care. And it provides the sort of support and encouragement um, needed to grow the relationship. We have procedures also on the front end that um, help an organization identify who the adults are that a young person feels close to, which is the first step. (laughs) And then, you know, we devote a very concentrated amount of time on basically supporting that the relationship, helping it grow with the expectation that when, you know, the formal program um, steps away, the relationship will continue to be a resource for the young person um, when they leave foster care. 
Okay. So you say you've developed this program. So if folks were interested in finding out more about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they could email me. Um, also, the program manual is available on Amazon now. And so you can just type my name into Amazon. Um, and it's called Caring Adults Are Everywhere with acronym CARE, C-A-R-E, because I learned pretty early on that from one of the best studies of youth who age out of care, um, about two-thirds of that population can say they feel close to an, an adult from when they were around age 14 still. And so in my mind, caring adults are everywhere, just nobody has really been looking for them or asking them to step up to the plate. And that's what my program does. You know, it's interesting that you say that because when I was in foster care, I got close with a pastor and his wife yeah. and yeah. the relief house parents, not the house parents, but the relief house parents. And I'm actually on Facebook with all of them today. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. You know, I want to use the way that you develop those organic relationships as a intentional protective resource and then provide support to both the young person and the adult so that relationship can really be a safety net for the young person when they age out of care. And do you believe this is something that could be applied system-wide somehow? Oh, I definitely think so. If we could dream. <laughs> if we could dream, you know, this would be, well, first of all, I'd have all the rigorous research behind it. So I've only been able to pilot. I haven't been able to do any other bigger research studies on it. So that would be obviously part of the dream. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, assuming the data show what I would anticipate that they show, which is that, you know, my program improves outcomes for kids as they age out of care, that then, you know, it could be available across the country in every state every county as one of the tools that can be used to help ease that transition. Uh, that would be great. Definitely. Not easy to change a system as big as, as child welfare, <laughs> but you have the research behind you. So there's that, that if anything, you've got some weight behind it. Right. Yeah. We're starting to accumulate some. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So let me go back to this term transition to independence is, is a bit of a misnomer because it does. I've never really thought about it. It does make it sound like you're transitioning to being on your own. By yourself. Yeah. yeah. And independence in itself is not a bad word. I think we all value independence. What we mean is you could support yourself and you know you can live on your own and you can do what you need to to be an adult. So then the question is, I'm going to challenge you, is what term would you use? One that I thought of was like, say, transition to supported independence. Yeah, or interdependence. Interdependence, transition to interdependence. Which connotes the idea that in the best circumstances of life, right, we still are connected. We still have, you know, we're still connected to people we care about and we have relationships. No one really gets through life completely alone, or at least not that they planned it that way. You know, it does happen in our society where, you know, we have social isolation problems. We have problems with homelessness and disconnected youth for sure. But that's not something we strive for, you know. 
I think even, you know, among the best adjusted, most well adjusted of us, part of what makes us successful is our relationships. You know, we are a a relational species. It's part of our basic needs are to have those, you know, meaningful relationships. And that should not be any different for young people that age out of foster care. It really shouldn't. Right. I was just thinking of another possible term could be connected independence. Transitioning to interdependence. I like it. Not sure if it will catch on, but if folks still want to use the independence word, maybe something like connected independence. Some, yeah, I, li- I appreciate that. I'm going to have to think about that some more. Well, I know that we're coming up on our time, so I'm just going to ask, Johanna, if you have any other thoughts, is there anything else from the work that you do that you would like to share before we sign off? I don't think so. I think we've talked about the things that are really most important to me. I guess the last thing I will share is sort of a call to action. So, you know, there I have three things I like to leave people with when when I talk about the issue of aging out and what these young people need. So the first is, you know, if you know a young person in foster care, to reach out to them because maybe you're that caring adult in their life. The second thing is to educate people around this very issue of independence versus interdependence and have conversations about this topic and even, you know, take it a step further and get involved in advocacy efforts and things like that. And then the last is to, um, is to empower. And we really need to, to start to get on board with the paradigm shift of how we just think about these young people and really get away from, you know, saying that that independence is the answer. And so we need to empower practitioners to think about how to better serve older youth in care and to think about them from a place of relational connectedness and social support development, as opposed to just focusing on skill building. Right. Those are some great things to leave us with. I really appreciate that. You're welcome. (laughs) Well, I think with that, I'm going to go ahead and say thank you again. I really appreciate, Johanna, that you've taken the time to speak with us today about what you do. And the research is so important to be able to know the strategies, what's going to work to assist the young people as they get older, as they transition to interdependence, ideally. (laughs) I'm going to start using that. (laughs) So um, I hope that those who are listening have come out of this with uh, something new that you didn't know before, because I know I have. And, uh, And Johanna, good luck with all of the work that you are doing. And I look forward to seeing the data that's coming out of this COVID-19 study. Excellent. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting. Any resources or research mentioned in today's podcast will be added to this episode's show notes at agingoutinstitute.org forward slash AOI podcast. If you have any suggestions for people or programs that you think we should highlight in a future podcast, please send an email with your ideas to podcast at agingoutinstitute.org. Finally, if you found this podcast to be informative or useful, we would greatly appreciate it if you would consider becoming a podcast-level patron on Patreon. 
For only $3 a month, you can help enable AOI to continue interviewing nonprofit leaders, social workers, and former foster youth well into the future. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash aging out institute. Thank you so much for considering it and thank you for listening. Until next time.